Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this is another of our special series looking back to 1989 and looking forwards to what it means for the future of Europe and the world. And I'm particularly happy today to be joined by two of my wonderful colleagues, Vesela Chanova from Sofia and Piotr Buras from Warsaw, who are not only the respective heads of our offices in Sofia and in Warsaw and senior policy fellows at ECFR, Vesela is also deputy director of ECFR, but they are also, I think, members of, uh, of the first beneficiary generation of 1989. If I'm right about this, I think you're exactly the same age as me, which means that you were at school when the Berlin Wall fell, and your future was therefore completely different from that of your of your parents' generation. So I'd, I'd love to go into both, you know, how, what it felt like as somebody who was at school when the Berlin Wall was falling and when all of these different kind of mental horizons ho- uh, opened up, and then to look a bit more at, at what your generation feels about where we've got to and what it might mean in the future. Vesta, do you want to, to maybe go first? Where were you in 1989 when Berlin Wall fell? Yes, I was 15. I was uh, in high school. And uh, I remember that day on the 10th of November when uh, Zivko fell, because we heard about it just by rumors. And somebody came into the classroom and said, you know, Zivko has fallen and nobody believed it. And then we looked at one of our schoolmates who was the son of one of Zivko's secretaries and he just nodded. And then the whole class was silent and we realized that that was true. And we streamed out on the street and... I think that's where we spent the next couple of years, practically, on the street. (laughs) But what did you think was going to happen when you heard that? I mean, look, it was an extremely exciting time for us because we thought that we would be very quickly in the West as a society, as a state, uh, that we would be part of, of this much better Europe, much better in terms of ideals, much more than uh, in terms of the material side. And we knew what freedom was because we, we knew what unfreedom was. And those first years, they were extremely, not only emotional and idealistic, but they were also the years when we really thought that the difference between open and closed societies is like between day and night. And that we are definitely in the daylight and will be there forever. We later learned that uh, this is more difficult. But... Uh, I think the transition as such was a much more difficult and much more traumatic experience than we thought in those first very romantic years. What about you, Piotr? Where were you in 1989? You know, in in Poland, or at least in my case, uh, there were at least two 89s because, of course, the the fall of the Berlin Wall is an event which which marked history in whole Europe and also in Poland. But uh, you had the round table before that. We had the round table. We had the first democratic election on the 4th of June. And so it's all started uh, much earlier in Poland. And my first experience with 89 was in February, where, where the round table means the discussions between the communists and the democratic opposition started. And that was, um, I was not even 15 at that moment, so it, I, but I was um, made aware of what was going on by my parents. And, and I, I think we, we all had the feeling, all that it then, that an era 
would come to an end. The very, the very fact that communists decided to open negotiations with democratic opposition was something unheard and something unprecedented. Uh, so that was a sign of weakness and so that's I would go wind of change. But of course, it was a huge anxiety how things would develop and uh, and that, of course, also uh, explains uh, the slow pace at which the changes uh, were were happening in Poland uh, compared to what happened then in, in the fall of 89 in, in, in Germany or in East Germany or, or in other countries of, you know, of the Soviet bloc. But that was, of course, the round table and then the, the first democratic election. Uh, that was really something big. And what was perhaps even more shocking was the fact that in, in August had first Prime Minister Tadeusz Mazowiecki from the Democratic opposition, which was actually not agreed upon at the round table. That was a, a further big change. And so basically in, in the, shortly before uh, the whole process started in the rest of Central Eastern Europe, Poland had already a Democratic uh, leader. Before we go into the politics and the transition and those sorts of things, it'd be really interesting just to get very, very personal about it. What did the two of you think that you were going to do with your lives? And how did that change after 1989? I dreamed to become an architect. And when 1989 happened, everything related to politics became so important that, you know, constructing buildings uh, was totally not interesting anymore. We were supposed to rebuild the society. And, and of course, I went on to study political sciences and later continued my studies in Germany because this was clearly the, the engine of change also for Central and Eastern Europe. When did you leave for Germany? In 94. 94 and that was the earliest that you could have done or could you have got out even earlier if, if you I to? I thought I think I could have gone out even earlier but I spent two and a half years on the faculty of political sciences here in Sofia because this was the time when the first democratic government was uh, in power until 92 and then there was a very difficult period following I left in the in the hope that Germany would pay more attention to our transitions because it was quite clear that at the same time the wars in Yugoslavia were getting um, deadlier against this background the Bulgarian transition was was actually a great achievement because if you look at the map at the end of the 80s you would probably say that Yugoslavia would be in the EU uh, if the wall would and Bulgaria would, would probably go into a civil war. We had the revival process at the same time, the change of the names of the Turks and so on. And yet the 90s were exactly the opposite. Bulgaria chose to go uh, through a peaceful transition, unlike Yugoslavia. And yet uh, we felt that it needed much more support in that transition. My motivation also to, to go and see how Germans think and how they can help what about you piotr what was your what kind <laughs> yeah, of life had you uh, pr probably uh, in in the early 89 i was still thinking of becoming a football star wow not materialized <laughs> in the end <laughs> but 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 if transformation post 89 had um, a, uh, a significant impact on uh, on my professional life I think it was also related to Germany, and and this is related again to this 
second 89 we, we had in Poland. It was the fall of the Berlin Wall, but also the German unification. Which we started then uh, opening in an extremely important period in the in the Polish foreign policy and the Polish-German relations with Germany becoming uh, the key partner, but also challenge for, for Poland. Poland had to reorient its whole foreign policy and start the process of reconciliation with Germany and the uh, new uh, treaty foundations of these relations. And that was a huge topic in the Polish, uh, not only in Polish foreign policy, but in the Polish politics as such. And that was basically the moment where I went to the university in the early 90s and, um, and also learned German. And I didn't leave for a longer time, uh, I didn't spend uh, back then much time in, in, in Germany. But Germany has become my key area of interest, and uh, and that was interesting because it, it, it for the long nineties was really a big topic in, in the Polish foreign policy, and I and I believe that that could be uh, a strong asset to to be an expert in German affairs. And and then in, in the in the late nineties, I, I thought that perhaps that that wouldn't be longer the case. Maybe the, the Germany would cease to be, you know, so important point of reference for Poland and for Europe. But of course, it's <laughs> it's somehow the the uh, after thirty years we can say that that the these feelings from uh, early nineties somewhat returned. That was the sort of personal change, and obviously your your lives have both revolved very much around Germany. You've both lived in Germany and spent time in Germany and been part of this kind of physical reconciliation of, of East and West. One of the things which has obviously had a transformative impact on a lot of Central and Eastern European countries are the millions of people who've left their countries. You both still living in um, in Poland and in Bulgaria, which probably makes you kind of unusual for your peer group. Is that right? No, How I many- don't think so. I don't think so. Look, there are people who left, there are people who are coming back I don't believe that this should be, you know, this is a a, a circular process, but it is true that a lot of our compatriots uh, have left to look for better opportunities, especially in, in, in Western Europe. And this is hurting our societies. But transition was indeed something very traumatic for many. Many people lost their status. Many people brought up kids who disillusioned and, but also want and compare themselves, want the lives of uh, of their Western uh, peers, and this is a very powerful tool. So comparison, I think, is what in many ways uh, drives uh, people out. Transition just don't, did not produce as quickly as we thought the results that uh, we hoped for in '89. Yeah, I think you know, in in Poland, the situation was probably uh, in general a little bit different than, for example, in Bulgaria and in Romania, where. I- this wave of emigration post-89 uh, was huge because Poland is also a much bigger country. So even if but it was much later than, than so many people emigrated to the UK, for example, it was not felt as a, such a huge loss. I mean, of course, it, uh, it, it is a problem and it, it has always been. But uh, given the scale of the country, uh, I think it was less of a problem. This, this phenomenon of, of depopulation, analyzed, described by Ivan in his uh, recent books and articles, uh, it was less of a problem. But but I think 
it is also a generational difference because uh, my generation, as you pointed out in the very, the very beginning, uh, is uh, those who were between, I would say, 15, 20, um, 89. Uh, we are definitely the, the beneficiaries of the early transformation because there were so many opportunities for us in the 90s that I would say from, from among my high school friends or, or university friends, there are not so many who emigrated or had to emigrate for the sake of getting good jobs because they basically could fulfill their ambitions uh, in Poland. I think it is different for, in the generation which is maybe 10 years younger or or especially 20 years younger. I mean, among them, uh, they, they, there is a feeling that Poland is no longer a country which offers these opportunities for, for young people. Uh, sometimes these feelings are legitimate, sometimes less legitimate, but I think the feeling is there. And, and this explains the quite considerable wave of emigration in the in the 2000s uh, and and also it explains uh, to some extent the frustration in the young generation with the the consequences of implications for of the of the economic and social transformation in Poland post 89 and the success of uh, of the populists um, and and support for them also among young people Maybe that's a sort of natural process to uh, time to go from the kind of personal to the to the sort of political and from your kind of individual stories to the to the national stories. I mean, you know, obviously every country's gone for its own trajectory, but there has been a sort of collective questioning, I think, of certainly of the wisdom and the political projects of many of the big Western countries. I think in all Central and Eastern European countries, particularly after the the refugee crisis in 2015. How do you feel about that? How kind of widespread is it? How much is, of what's happening in all Central and Eastern European countries is just a cyclical thing? Because, you know, you obviously had lots of cycles of a, a post-communist and then communists came back into power in lots of different countries and then they went in and out. So there were obviously been a kind of normal back and forth around these complicated transition processes. But how much do you think something structurally changed in 2015? The Polish angle is uh, is more important in this case, but I would dare say that Bulgaria's uh, separation between the civic patriotism, if I may call it this way, from the political nationalism, this separation happened in the late 80s here because of the so-called revival process because the change of the names of the Bulgarian Turks was such a bloody affair that that created a civic movement which was one of the first resistance movement against communism in in this country in the 80s we never kind of had the urge of uh, resorting to the political nationalism to the extent this happened in Poland. I think, and, and Piotr can correct me uh, if I'm wrong, but I think in Poland that probably happened with the separation between the civic platform and peace. And I think 2015 catalyzed a lot of this. And I guess your question also goes to the paradox that the kind of the richer we are, because it's clear that we have had some 20 very good years in terms of well-being and peace, the richer we get, the less tolerant we get. And this is a paradox of our, the paradox of our transition. 
And this is also something that, that 2015 demonstrated very clearly. Before I answer, try to answer your question, I would like to make one, one important point because I think we are all very much preoccupied at the moment with the, with the failures of, of liberalism or neoliberalism in Central Eastern Europe in 89 and for good reasons, of course. I think striking is that the probably main important factor uh, or main important criterion which we need to take into account while assessing the successes or failures of this transformation, which is the level of life satisfaction of the people, shows very clearly that the people in Central Eastern Europe are much more satisfied with their lives today than they were 30 years ago. And this, and this, this difference is, is massive. It's, it's, according to Pew Research Center and, and its recent survey, it's, it's between 30, 40 percentage points compared to, to the early 90s. This is important to have it, in a way, on the back of our heads uh, when we are discussing the failures of, of what has happened. When it comes to 2015 and, and the impact of the migration crisis, I think, as Vesela said, it was a catalyst of some changes in, in Central Eastern Europe, and it definitely helped the PIS to power in Poland. It was not the, the only factor or not, not even the, the most important trigger of, uh, of this populist wave uh, in Central Eastern Europe. I think we have seen that uh, the transformation has been very beneficial for the Polish economy and, and Poland uh, has become a very strong economy in the last 30 years. But what has been very much neglected uh, has been the society and the state. And the, the poor state of the state structures, of welfare state, and also a very high level of, of individualization, or I would even say atomization of, of the society, has led to frustrations which erupted uh, after the years of liberal rule by Donald Tusk and, and, um, and other governments. And, uh, and I think without them, without this feeling of not only being left behind, but also not really being seen by, by the state, by the elite, respected, not recognized uh, among many citizens in, in Poland, the political upheaval would have not been possible. And, I, and maybe I would also add one additional point, and this is the, uh, the absence of the left in the Polish political life. Even if we had a social democratic party, this post-communist or ex-communist party, it did not basically represent any left uh, positions or leftist economic or social policies. And uh, so the liberalism was the only, or the economic liberalism was the only game in town in the, in the, in the 90s and in the 2000s. And without any social or social democratic alternative, it was then replaced by social populism. And I think this is probably the case also in many other Central Eastern European countries. So you've both got kids, and maybe that's a kind of concrete way to, to look at the future. What does 1989 mean for the future? Be really interesting, maybe again, to start with the kind of personal... Did you mark any of the kind of celebrations with your kids? What, what do they feel about 1989? Do they think this is just kind of weird nostalgia from their parents or were they kind of moved by it? How, how do they feel about, about 1989? My daughter is quite, she's 12, but she's quite well aware of what uh, happened around 89. 
I'm not sure that this is the case with her generation and frankly with the generation before her. We have had uh, difficulties assessing our past uh, in the sense that in the textbooks there were one or two lessons about communism and it was always awkward and teachers didn't know what to do with this. I think this is slowly getting to a better place, but it will take time because communism in the last two decades, I think, had become much softer and many people in the transition felt that they were losers, although objectively they were having a better life. I think there is still a way to go in terms of how reconcile with our past. This is a very important battle, by the way. Uh, did um, you, but did you do anything on, on specific dates? With Mia, we had the Balkan strategy group on that day. So, unfortunately, I got in the way of of (laughs) Mia's political education. Sorry, (laughs) but my husband took her to a stand-up comedy, which was uh, dedicated to the to the transition. She found it funny, so we still can speak that language. And what about you, Piotr? You know, we we were planning to go uh, um, as a family to dance to celebrate uh, the 4th of, of June. There were quite uh, interesting festivities with Donald Tusk, and, but uh, finally we didn't, but it, of course uh, we didn't go, but it was, uh, of course, an, an important uh, topic, uh, at least with my sons, who were 12 and 15, and uh, conversation. But of course it, it is in Poland, uh, these reminiscences of 89 uh, and the, the way how Poland regained not only independence, national independence, but also democracy are now more and more vivid because of, of the domestic political situation. We have, again, uh, manifestations in the streets. We have protests against uh, the, 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 the Polish government uh, violating the, the constitution and rule of law and democratic standards. So, so there are many reasons and many occasions to, to talk about it and to explain also to the children how things have developed over the last 30 years and uh, what it actually meant to get out of the communism and start a new political system. And we, uh, interestingly, that was not related to the the anniversary of 89, but we visited the Museum of Communism, which we have more one in in Poland. It's not a big museum, it's a private one, but it was uh, also interesting to see how alien this communist time is to the to the young generation to the generation of my children today so that that's 30 years back but it's it's really it feels for them like like really uh, ages back so that was quite an interesting experience for me as well so maybe you can end with a sort of last question which is when we come back together to record the world in 30 minutes uh, for the 60th anniversary of 1989 <laughs> <laughs> uh, what do you think we'll be saying? Do you think it will be the same kind of bittersweet thing where we're celebrating the, the events, but kind of mourning the, the sort of political legacy and the divisions within Europe? Or what do you think the main trends will be talking about? I think the pendulum will go back. I think we will have learned some of the lessons of not only of communism, but also of the past 30 years. And we would have, we would be more careful with not only how to rebuild the economy, but also how to rebuild the societies and how to, to create fairer societies, because this was part of it. Part of the reason, I think, as, as also Piotr mentioned. There is also this thing about us having been young, you know. <laughs> so I guess in 30 years, we will just think, oh my God, this was so 
this was also great because uh, uh, it's obviously much better when you're much younger. <laughs> what, what do you think, Piotr? Yeah, I, I think, you know, I'm probably a bit pessimistic, but there, I think there are reasons for that, uh, not just in, in, in Poland, but in the in Europe or in the whole world. I think in 30 years, the climate change will be the key topic. And and I think we will probably, if, if we are going to have time to look back at 89, we will probably realize how stupid we were that we embraced, not just as Central Eastern Europe, but the West, a certain model of economy and did not find ideas how and, and the courage to reform it or to change it completely, which basically proved to be the key trigger of the hopefully not such a huge but still a disaster which we'll be experiencing in 30 years so so i think there will be a lot of thinking about uh, how the the world in uh, 2050 could look like if we had reinvented ourselves in the course of this huge success the west experienced in 89 Okay, that's an uplifting note to end the podcast on. We always end with our bookshelf segment. On this special series, I've asked people not just what's on their bookshelves at the moment, but whether there is something that people could or should read which will really help them understand the significance of 1989. I don't know whether you could both recommend one book or article or film which you think will be most useful to people we really want to, to get deeper into the meaning of 1989. I will recommend two books, if you allow me. One is a book on Bulgaria, because I think Bulgaria has been a bit under the radar around the around 89. The end of our regime happened a day after the fall of the Berlin Wall. And I think even journalists uh, from big Western media back then were just too preoccupied in Berlin to, <laughs> to go elsewhere and to do Bulgaria. So... There is a book called uh, History of the People's Republic of Bulgaria by um, Ratlich, which is a, a nice uh, collection of essays on the different angles of, of that um, change. And then there is another book by the British-American poet and historian, uh, Robert Conquest, who for a while, uh, I mean, he's obviously a historian of, of the Soviet Union, and uh, he, but he was for a while married to a Bulgarian and uh, I think has been here during communism at least uh, once. His book is called Reflections on a Ravaged uh, Century. And it's also a collection of essays about fascism and communism and the sources of extreme political ideologies in Central and Eastern Europe. And I think this is a book that can be reread today. Wonderful. What about you, Piotr? I can recommend uh, one book for the German language speakers uh, who I, yesterday I met the author in Warsaw, uh, Thomas Kleine-Brockhoff, <laughs> whom we all know quite well, I think, in the think tank world, vice president of GMF, and he has just published a book, Die Welt braucht in Westen, Neustadt für eine liberale Ordnung. This is a very interesting account of, of what happened in Europe and in the West since 89 and, and how the liberal rules-based order can be reinvented and, and maintained and I think it's a very timely reading. Great well fantastic thanks so much for taking the time to go back through 
your personal experiences of 1989, but also to put it into this much wider geopolitical context. If you've enjoyed listening to the series, let everyone that you know know about it by taking to social media, but above all, going to whatever platform you're using to listen to this podcast on and giving us a fantastic review and a rating that will help allow other people to find the podcast as well. We will put links to all the publications that we mentioned on our website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcast. But for now, from Vesta Chanava, Piotr Buras, myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Jonathan Hachenbrauch, and our editor is Marlene Riedel. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.